0: Chapter 4 of Victorian Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruhi Huck. Victorian Literature by Clement Shorter. The Critics, Part 2 during the last twenty years of the century economic study has taken increasingly the direction of elaborate investigation of the circumstances of industrial life on the one hand a school of economic historians arnold Toynbee with a brilliant operku on the industrial revolution thorold rogers in his monumental history of agriculture and prices dr cunningham in the growth of english history and commerce and Professor W.J. Ashley in economic history and theory have greatly extended our knowledge of past industry. On the other hand, we have the colossal work undertaken at his own expense by Mr. Charles Booth, assisted by a group of zealous students, including H. Lelulin Smith, D.F. Shalos, and Miss Clara Collette, now all filling official posts at the Labor Department of the Board of Trade and miss beatrice potter now mrs sydney webb a complete survey of london life statistical economic industrial and social the nine volumes of this life and labour of the people already issued constitute one of the most important statistical works ever undertaken by a private person mr and mrs sydney webb wrote together another valuable contribution to economic science in the history of trade unionism 1894, 1820. but political economy is merely a branch of the larger science of sociology and for the first general treatment of the whole science since comte we turn to the most characteristic philosopher of the century herbert spencer was born at derby where his father was a teacher of mathematics from his father and uncle the latter a Congregational Minister, he received his early education. Articled at 17 years of age to a civil engineer, he followed that profession with some success for seven or eight years, when he gradually drifted into literature. A series of letters by him on the proper sphere of government, appearing in the Nonconformist for 1842. A few years later, he wrote for the Westminster Review at the house of the editor of which magazine he met George Eliot in 1851 and began the most famous friendship of his life. It was also in 1851 that he published his first work, Social Statistics, and four years later, his Principles of Psychology. In 1861, he published his work on Education and the following year, his first Principles. Between that time and 1896, he has slowly built up a system of synthetic philosophy in a dozen bulky volumes, which has secured him a very large following, not only in England, but throughout the continent and America. His descriptive sociology is the production of many writers who have worked under his direction, collecting facts from travelers and scientists all over the world. To have placed psychology and ethics on a scientific basis in harmony with the discoveries of the century is a truly great achievement many years have now passed away since herbert spencer claimed the whole domain of knowledge as his own and undertook to revise in accordance with the latest lights the whole sphere of philosophy what must have seemed intolerable presumption in eighteen sixty became in eighteen ninety six a completed task in universality of knowledge he rivals aristotle and bacon at a time when the sphere of learning is immensely larger than in their epochs it is not within the province of this survey of literature to go through the twelve large volumes of his works in detail we would rather point out that to the unphilosophical reader who would willingly know something of spencer's literary powers the study of sociology which he wrote to the international scientific series and his treatise on education are books which all who read must enjoy to him with mill belongs the glory of restoring to great britain the old supremacy in philosophy given to her by bacon continued by locke hume and berkeley and temporarily interrupted by kant and hegel another writer who has attempted to combine psychology with physiology is alexander Bain, who was for many years professor of logic in the university of aberdeen and twice lord rector Bain assisted Mill in the preparation of his logic, and has himself written a treatise on that science, also lengthy works on the senses and the intellect, and the emotions and the will. Perhaps his work on mental and moral science is his best-known contribution to student literature. Although he is an author, he is the author of books on grammar and composition, Professor Bain's style is always oppressively heavy and unattractive. As Spencer and Bain combined psychology with physiology, so it was the effort of Boole and de Morgan to extend the scope of logic by an ingenious application of mathematics. 1838-1882 to The leader for many years of the Hegelian School of Philosophy at Oxford, which has long held the field against Mill on the one hand and Spencer on the other, was Thomas Hill Green was appointed white professor of moral philosophy in 1877 and who published the same year a series of articles in the contemporary review on mr herbert spencer and mr g h lewis their application of the doctrine of evolution to thought he was preparing for publication his prolegomena to ethics at the time of his death and the work was finally edited by professor a c bradley who has himself written a treatise on logic and whose hegelian work titled ethical studies is of the highest interest green was a moral force in oxford quite apart from his philosophical speculation as the following extracts from one of his lectures will indicate i confess to hoping for a time when the phrase the education of a gentleman will have lost its meaning because the sort of education which alone makes the gentleman in any true sense will be within the reach of all as it was the aspiration of moses that all the lord's people should be prophets so with all seriousness and reverence we may hope and pray for a condition of english society in which all honest citizens will recognize themselves and be recognized by each other as gentlemen eighteen seventeen to eighteen seventy eight george henry lewis whose name is frequently joined with that of spencer by his association of biology with ethics and psychology was the son of charles lee lewis the actor and was one of the most versatile writers of our times his first important work was the biographical history of philosophy originally published in eighteen forty five in knight's shilling library but amplified without improvement into two substantial volumes in eighteen sixty seven lewis's distaste for the ordinary metaphysics and the severity of his criticism on hegel have rendered his work the better noir of all transcendental students but it remains the one english history of philosophy of any pretension more unqualified praise may be given to the life of goethe which lewis published in eighteen fifty five perhaps no other man than living could have shown himself competent to deal with the goethe's many-sidedness to discuss faust and tasso hermann and dorothea at one moment the poet's biological and botanical discoveries the next and to estimate at their true worth the speculations on colours which goethe held to be more calculated than his poems to secure him immortality the book remains the standard life of the great welmar sage in this country and is popular in germany in spite of a vast goethe literature which has been published since its appearance in addition to these great works lewis wrote two novels one of which ranthorpe charlotte bronte praised enthusiastically he edited the fortnightly review and also initiated a craze for aquaria by seaside studies he endeavoured indeed to popularise many of the sciences particularly physiology his last years were devoted to philosophical questions and his problems of life and mind were published in fragments the concluding volume under john Eliot's editorship after his death 1781 to 1868 1791 to 1867 the earliest writer of the era to popularize science was sir david brewster an eminent physicist in whose edinburgh's encyclopedia carlyle comments his literary career his life of newton martyrs of science and more worlds than one are still widely read michael faraday another famous physicist is still better remembered by our own generation principally for his popular lectures at the royal institution where he was superintendent of the laboratory of forty-eight years he was a blacksmith's son and was originally apprenticed to a bookminder after his discovery of magneto-electricity he had he told Tyndall, a hard struggle to decide whether he should make wealth or science the pursuit of his life Tyndall calculates that faraday could easily have realized a hundred and fifty thousand pounds but he declared for science and died a poor man john tyndall who once said that it was his great ambition to play the part of skiller to this goethe succeeded faraday at the royal institution and wrote about him eloquently in his faraday as a discoverer tyndall was born at leighlin bridge carlow Ireland, in eighteen twenty His father was a member of the Irish Constabulary. His services to many branches of science were great, but he concerns us here not so much by his treatises on electricity, sound, light, and heat, or by his discoveries in diamagnetism, as by his lectures on science for unscientific people, which Huxley said was the most scientific book he had ever read, and which has yet the transcendent merit of giving enjoyment as well as instruction even to the readers of three-volume novels in eighteen fifty six tyndall made a journey to switzerland in company with professor huxley and the friends afterwards wrote a treatise on the structure and motion of glaciers geological treatises may be said to have given the fullest play to the literary side of science the work of robert bentley and sir joseph hooker in botany of michael foster sir george Mivart and francis maitland balfour in biology is it may be equal or superior to that of the bulk of the writers whose achievements we have chronicled but it is not a part of literature burdon sanderson balfour stuart and a host of other men have done incalculable service in the victorian era service it is to be feared which scarcely obtains as generous recognition as the cheap generalizations of smaller men but scientific textbooks however important are scarcely within the scope of these chapters geology on the other hand as it were a conglomerate of the sciences and lends itself readily to the most eloquent literary expression few writers have been more widely read than hugh miller a cromarty stonemason whose first enthusiasm for study of the rocks arose from following his trade but whose life was mainly devoted to journalism and to editing the witness his old red sandstone footprints of the creator and the testimony of the rocks were effective in kindling a taste for natural science the special study which miller gave to the red sandstone rocks was extended by sir roderick M. P. Murkison to the silurian system and his work entitled siloria has passed through many editions scotland seems to have been the nursery of geologists for miller and murkison seventeen ninety seven to eighteen seventy five lyell and his brothers geikie were all born north of the tweed sir charles lyell was born at kinaudy in Forfarshire and educated at midhurst and at exeter college oxford Called to the bar he went to the western circuit for two years but when attending some of dr buckland's lectures he became attached to geology his principles of geology first published in eighteen thirty caused a revolution in the science never before had there been presented such a connected illustration of the influences which had caused the earth's changes in the unresting distribution of land and water areas Much of Lyell's great work reads like a fairy-tale. Much might have been thought the fruit of an imaginative rather than of a scientific mind. Lyell's smaller book, The Student's Elements of Geology, was injured in literary merit by the progressive study of the science of which he had been the second father. The constant addition of fresh knowledge, and his conversion to Darwin's views, necessitated the continual rewriting of parts, and further revision by other hands, after the author's death. The antiquity of man, in defense of Darwin's theory, is of more value from a literary standpoint. Before the beginning of the reign, William Buckland, Dean of Westminster, by whose lectures Lyle had so much profited, had written his famous Bridgewater Triatus on geology and mineralogy, considered with reference to natural theology. His son, Frank Buckland, wrote clever and readable books on natural history, and had genuine enthusiasm for the study of animal life, but he was charged with having vulgarized the studies in which he took so keen an interest. The most distinguished living geologist is Sir Archibald Geicke, who is now Director General of the Geological Survey of the United Kingdom. His textbook, which was first published in 1882, is a model of lucid writing and his essays are among the most pleasant literary products of the age. His brother, James Geike, has written an important work on glaciation entitled The Great Ice Age, 1784-1856, to 1826-1880, 1809-1882. But the scientific literature of the past 60 years might almost be said to be summarized in the work of Charles Darwin a funeral in westminster abbey amid the mourning of many nations closed the career of one whose life-work has been greeted with scorn our century is darwin's centuries said a leading german newspaper algemeen at his death and the statement is no exaggeration to those who witnessed the long stream of prelates and nobles who filed through the abbey at his funeral and then archbishop of canterbury dr tate and the present prime minister lord salisbury among the number could not but recall the reception of the great investigator's theory twenty years before bishop wilberforce in particular denounced it in the quarterly review as a flimsy speculation darwin's antecedents were of a nature such as on the principle of heredity a great man should possess his paternal grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was a poet, whose botanic garden may still be read with interest. His maternal grandfather was Josiah Wedgwood, the famous potter. Darwin was the son of a doctor of Shrewsbury, and was educated at the grammar school of that city and at Christ's College, Cambridge. Here his natural history studies were sympathetically directed by Professor Henslow, the botanist, by whose recommendation he was selected to accompany the Beagle on its expedition to survey the South American coast. The results of his travels were embodied in his first important work, Journals of Researches During a Voyage Around the World, which was published in 1839, and was republished under the title of A Naturalist's Voyage Around the World. In the same year, he married his cousin, Miss Wedgwood, and, after a few years of London life, took up his residence in a pleasant country house at Down, near Beckenham, in Kent. Here he pursued his remarkable investigations under his death, surrounded by his accomplished children, and finding, as he told a friend, his highest emotional gratification in the joys of family life, and a love of inanimate nature. Two of his sons, George Howard Darwin and Francis Darwin, have done good work in science, the one in geology and astronomy, the other in botany. Darwin himself wrote also on the structure and distribution of coral reefs, revolutionizing the popular view concerning these remarkable phenomena. Discovering that reef-building polyps cannot live at depths of more than 20 fathoms, he found it necessary to explain the presence of rocks built by them, which rise from more than 2,000 feet below the surface of the sea. This he did on the hypothesis of a gradual subsidence of the sea floor, whilst the polyps are at work this view has since been generally accepted by geologists although somewhat modified by john murray's observation in the challenger expedition that the reefs are not always of solid coral and that they may in many cases have been formed on the cones of extinct volcanoes 1822-1848-1894 darwin had pondered for many years over the theory which was to make him famous before he decided to bring his conclusions before the public after considerable observation of every form of animal and vegetable life and the experiments in selective breeding he concluded that the species of plants and animals now on the earth were not created in their present form but had evolved by unbroken descent and the modification of structure from cruder forms and remains of many of which are constantly discovered in the older rocks. He discovered in 1858 that Alfred Russell Wallace had independently arrived at the same conclusions, and so it was agreed that their views should be jointly laid before the Linnean society. In 1859, The Origin of Species was published, and it was followed by a number of works bearing upon the same subject. The most notable of all being The Descent of Man. Darwin's work on earthworms, perhaps the most purely literary of all his writings, appeared the year before his death. It is not the province of a sketch of Victorian literature to discuss the many important bearings of the Darwinian hypothesis. Received with unbound contempt by literary men so eminent as Carlyle and Ruskin, it was accepted only, with qualification, by men of science like Agassiz, Carpenter, and Owen. But an overwhelming majority of scientific men in England, America, and above all, in continental countries, have declared in its favor. The theory has received popular interpretation in Germany from Heichel and in England from Huxley. Although in this connection, we must not forget George John Romains, the author of Animal Intelligence and Mental Evolution in Animals, Grant Allen and Edward Claude thomas henry huxley eighteen twenty five to eighteen ninety five one of the greatest of our men of science was of interest not only on account of his vast scientific attainments but for his profound acquaintance with metaphysics as illustrated in his life of hume his wide culture and his exquisite literary style he was born and educated at ealing in middlesex where his father was a schoolmaster he studied medicine at the charing cross hospital then entered the royal navy as an assistant surgeon and went in the rattlesnake to survey the barrier reef of australia the papers which he sent to the royal and Linnean societies gave him fame after his return he devoted himself to original research but work of that sort brings no recompense in money and huxley's means were narrow in eighteen fifty four however he obtained the chairs of natural history and paleontology at the school of mines and to this he afterwards added the appointment of inspector in fisheries the blue ribbon of science the presidency of the royal society was conferred on him in eighteen eighty three huxley wrote much on biological problems and by the publication of his physiography gave a new name to the science which has extended the scope of the old physical geography. But his interest for us here is in his lay sermons, addresses and reviews, his critiques and addresses, and his American addresses, all of which may take rank among the finest prose of our age. As an interesting contrast to the work of Darwin and Huxley, and all that it has implied to modern literature, one may refer once again to the movement inspired by Cardinal Newman, his most prominent associates for many years neither of whom however left the church of england for the church of rome were Pusley and Keble, eighteen hundred to eighteen eighty two edward bovary pussy was practically the founder of the modern high church movement in the anglican community a writer of tracts for the times he was after Newman had gone over to rome the recognized head of the movement and his followers were frequently called Hussiites. a demoralisation of the party seemed inevitable on Newman's secession, but the publication of Dr. Pucy's letter to Keble gave it fresh life in eighteen sixty six His Irenecon, a proposal for the reunion of Christendom, drew a reply from Cardinal Newman, with whom, however, he maintained the profoundest friendship to the end. John Keble, who was born at Fairford in Gloucestershire, was a man of far higher gifts. Educated at Corpus Christi College, Oxford, he obtained a fellowship at Oriel. For some years he was professor of poetry at Oxford, a position for which he had qualified himself by the publication of the Christian Year, a volume of religious poems for every Sunday and church festival, many of which have been admitted into the hymnology of all the Christian sects. Perhaps truer poetry is to be found in his lyra Innocentium, a series of poems on children for there the human element is more marked. Keble also wrote a life of Bishop Wilson and published several volumes of sermons. 1787-1863 to 1795-1842 The movement of liberal theology to which men like Keble gave the name of national apostasy was headed in its earlier developments by Archbishop Waterley and Dr. Arnold of Rugby and more recently by the reverend frederick Denison maurice and dean stanley richard Whateley, who was at oriel with kebley had published his once popular logic and rhetoric before the commencement of the reign of victoria and in eighteen thirty one had been made archbishop of dublin a position which he held till his death in eighteen sixty three winning all hearts by his kindness and liberality by his generous tolerance and zeal for progress, his logic is chiefly of importance for the impetus it gave to the study of that science. 1795-1842 to 1842, His Christian evidences gained in its day a wider audience. Thomas Arnold was born at East Cowes on the Isle of Wright and was educated at Winchester and with Kebley at Corpus Christi College, Oxford after ordination he moved to lelelem on thames where he prepared young men for the universities when in eighteen twenty seven the head mastership of rugby became vacant arnold was elected on the strength of a recommendation by dr hawkins to the effect that he would change the face of education all through the public schools of england the prophecy was fulfilled he was the first to introduce modern languages and modern history and in mathematics into the regular school course. At the same time, he always insisted on the value of the classics as a basis of education and himself prepared an edition of Thucydides and wrote a history of Rome in its earlier periods, which is at least eminently interesting. His services to his country as an educational reformer were even greater on the moral side. Dr. Arnold was a purifying influence to men of the higher classes to a degree which is inexplicable to the present generation. For a time he was unpopular and his school suffered through his advocacy of church reform and his association with political liberalism. But the success of his pupils at the universities had caused a reaction in his favor at the time of his death, which occurred all too early, for he was only 47. Of his many distinguished pupils, perhaps the best-known are Tom Hughes and Dean Stanley. Thomas Hughes, who in 1882 was made a country court judge, wrote many books, but only one of them entitles him to be remembered today. In a moment of happy inspiration, he wrote the finest boy's book in the language, Tom Brown's School Days, was published in 1857. It is a picture of life at rugby, under Dr. Arnold's healthy, manly guidance. End of The Critics, Part 2.